Welcome to Piecing It All Together. Hey, good day to you. I'm Randy Woodley. And I'm Bo Sanders. And we're piecing it all together with you today. (laughs) We have a lot to talk about today, including six Southern Baptist seminaries that have banned our book and books like it. Well, yeah, I, I'm not sure we're, we've made the list yet, but I'm pretty sure we will, along with a number of other folks. So, yeah, yeah we want to talk about deep questioning today, right? right. So, um, and there's lots of tools to get us there. So, yeah. What yeah, are your I thoughts think, on deep questioning? Well, I saw the phrase deep questioning the first time uh, when you were in a Facebook conversation with somebody who had, um, you know, brought up some concerns and and we'll, we'll obviously talk about this. this is our main theme today, but it's the first time that I had seen the phrase, the way that you used it, and I just loved it. And so when we were talking about uh, recording, I said, man, I'd love to talk about that with you. So I'm, I'm going to be interested to pick your brain on that. Cool. Let's do it. Before we get to that, we want to thank our Patreon supporters who have been so faithful Uh, during this time and have enabled us to even get a new microphone for Randy. Some of you are going to notice the sound quality is way up. So we're very grateful for that. Randy, we live in a very strange time. Before we started recording, um, I was telling you that uh, I have an event here. I can go weeks without seeing another human being uh, in my quarantine life but that today we are putting together uh, Christmas bags to give to people. And we have some volunteers who are going to come to the building that I work in. And they're going to be in another part of the building in the entryway, in the lobby. But I've been working hard to set them up with the bags and all the goodies that go in it and um, turning on the heat so that when they're here, I don't have to go over to that part of the building and and, and encounter anybody. And it's just very strange. I feel myself as a social being. I feel very strange that just seeing other human beings causes me this much anxiety. And um, you were telling me a story about you had to take a little road trip yesterday. and had to get tested for COVID yesterday because I've been dizzy for a number of weeks now. And and then I've had a couple of night sweats. And so I... Uh, I thought, eh, you know, I better go get tested. So I was able to, which is, it was very difficult to do, by the way. Not easy at all to get tested. I had to sort of lay down some guilt and and talk about, you know, uh, like my vulnerability and all these kinds of things. And, and then I finally got tested. So um, even just to get tested, it's not an easy thing. But yeah, my, and, and the reason I did it, my, my brother had just told me the day before about uh, someone he knew who was dizzy and found out he had uh, COVID and then he died. And that was the only symptom that he had was that uh, he was dizzy. So I thought, you know, this may be more than just an inner ear thing. So I need to uh, get tested. And fortunately, the test came back negative. So I'm, I'm all clear, but I'm still dizzy. Well, that's great. But while you were out, you know, if you ever have to use the bathroom, you know, the restaurants are closed, so you can't use that restroom. And so you have to go into a public building and just going in there causes anxiety. Oh, lots of anxiety. Yeah. And, and you hope that they have a, uh, a you know, a, a, one of the blue buttons you can push so the door opens by itself so you don't have to touch anything. 
Yeah, it's just a really, really uh, bizarre experience to be so isolated. I'm not, obviously, I'm not that built for it. I know that some people are enduring this just fine, but um, some of us, you know, it cause, it's really actually quite a, a discipline uh, to do. And then when you do venture out, you remember why you're isolating because it really does, like I said, it really causes you to like second guess everything, things you touch, who you encounter. Did you really need to do that uh, outing? Yeah, it's really wild. Right. And I, I miss our Alahe community terribly. I miss gathering together and talking and joking and eating together. And But now I can imagine like when we come back together, are we all going to be suspect of one another and keep our distances? And how's that even going to work out? It's a, it's a weird world that we're now living in. Yeah. Now, a second strange element to this weird world that we're living in is the political arena that we are facing. Oh but what is what is inflaming the entire situation is that we are working off two entirely different information streams. And an interesting right. thing in the news this week where Trump supporters um, have started to turn on Fox News. Yeah. No, no, yeah. No, you could also say they begin to turn it off. <laughs> they've been turning on it, uh, which means they have been turning it off and going to uh, more uh, right-wing conspiracy-driven news sources like uh, Newsmax and, and things like this. So, so yeah, Fox has now gotten to be too um, honest for them, which is amazing because I've always found it to be one of the most dishonest news programs. Not every one. There's, there's a couple of good ones, Chris Wallace and others on there, but, but, uh, but a lot of them, uh, like, you know, Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson and those guys are just completely dishonest, disreputable. Um, just, I don't see how they look at themselves in the mirror, but now they're too conservative. Uh, I mean, they're too liberal for, um, for the, the folks who are following Trump. So, yeah, it's yeah. just unimaginable the fracturing that we are seeing across our culture at so many different levels. I was really fascinated. Uh, I haven't had a chance to talk to you about this yet, but I was really fascinated in the wake of the most recent presidential election when they tried to examine different voting blocks, the way that they like to use uh, demographics. And we've said for a long time, like there is no black vote, right? That's not... It's not a, a homogenous, a mono culture. There's no black vote, but it was really interesting to see in, in the wake of that, some interesting things come out. Like for instance, the Latino vote or Latinx mm -hmm. vote, um, where people are saying, you know, Guatemalans are very different than Puerto Ricans who are very different than Dominicans who are very different from uh, Mexican uh, heritage. And so you can't, you cannot group that, that uh, demographic together and call it one thing. Well, yeah, I, 
I think, uh, I mean, there's really no group that you can do that with, but there are some groups that actually weigh much more heavily democratic than others. And so I think they're, what we're talking about is just nuancing this thing. So uh, basically, if you look at Florida, you have uh, the Cuban vote, which is largely Republican, and there's been some people on the ground doing work on that for years and years and years and years. This is the anti-Castro movement. And um, uh, and, the, and the whole scare that all oh, the, the Democrats are going to be socialists and then, you know, they they love uh, the Castro's and, you know, uh, communism and all that kind of stuff. Crazy, crazy shit. Right. But um, but but that's just sort of how it's broken down. And so you have largely the Cuban vote, not completely, of course, um, which goes one way. And then you have the Puerto Rican vote, which is another segment, a large, the, probably the largest or second largest uh, in uh, Florida, which many are uh, go back and forth from Puerto Rico or from New York. And it's kind of uh, um, uh, in other places, Philadelphia and other places like that, but that largely democratic vote. And so I think if we're going to break these things down, we need to break them down to the ethnicity um, uh, uh, sort of like um uh, more than just say let, let, uh, Latinx vote, we, we need to say like, well, the Cuban vote in Florida has gone such and such and yeah. Puerto Rican vote in Pennsylvania is such and such. And, and we have the tools to do that. Um, and you could also do Native Americans on reservations and Native Americans off reservations. Mm. And, uh, you know, there's lots of ways to break this down if we want to get more specific. But, you know, it's so easy for the news media to just go, uh, you know, throw everybody into uh, these categories, but they've been breaking down these white categories for years and years and years, you know, white, uh, you know, college educated, uh, white women in the suburbs, et cetera, et cetera. So, so that's pretty common. So if you can do it with white folks, you can also do it with everyone else because we are just as important. Yeah. But it is the fracturing that has gotten my attention that we live in this incredibly, uh, not just diverse, but divisive atmosphere where things are not just segregated, but they, there's an animosity, right? And, and then social media on top of that just inflames everything. But it doesn't, I don't know that it creates the divisions, but it certainly accentuates them. But there is at every level, even within, I'm hearing within denominations and congregations um, and, you know, states, obviously, but just an extreme polarization and fracturing into all of these various camps. Yeah, and, and that's sort of like uh, um, endemic to what it means to be an American in a lot of ways. Uh, the, um, the idea that if you, you have freedom of speech and you don't like something, you just go start something else. And so that's pretty common in our history. It's very common with uh, denominations and and uh, unfortunately, political parties haven't gotten the weight uh, that, uh, that that uh, sort of fracturing uh, could bring. And so we still have a two-party system, which is, I think, very unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah. It would be interesting if we did have a multi-party system where they had to form coalition governments and actually work together. Well, I, I to get something. Yeah, I think that's great. Yeah, Canada and other places like that have that. So um, I, I think we may end up seeing. Um, by the way, our Canadian listeners always remind me: don't celebrate that too much. Look at the Canadian politics; we're and they're just as broken and paralyzed. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Go ahead. Sorry. So, um, 
Yeah, if um, I think what we're seeing right now, we're seeing the fracturing of the Republican Party. So you've got basically uh, Trumpians and then you've got um, more moderates, what I would call. Uh, so you have the Lincoln Project. I think we may end up seeing the Lincoln Party as uh, another form of uh, republicanism. Huh. Um, and so uh, and then, you know, who knows if the same thing's going to happen? You know, we'll see how things how the new uh, Biden uh, group governs, but they haven't really appointed very many, uh, well, almost no uh, progressive people to important positions at this point. And so yeah. I think we're getting feeling the cold shoulder there from the Biden administration. We'll yeah. see how far that division goes and where it takes us. But uh, I think the Republican thing is already the, you know, the genie's out of the bottle. It's too late to, to yeah. put it back together. You're going to end up, I think, with two Republican parties and, um, um, and I, I think maybe this will be the, the answer to uh, the solution that many of us have been looking for to get out of the two-party system. Who knows? Yeah, it'd be, it would be interesting if both parties split into two, even with the Democrats, between centrists, you know, like the Clintons, and I would put Biden in there, and then the progressives, and everyone loves to point to Bernie Sanders and um, AOC. Mm -hmm. uh, she just has, uh, she just gets her own moniker now. She's so famous. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's great. I think it's great. She, the, the the youngest and and with the most energy and uh, the biggest opinions in Congress, basically in the Democratic side, and uh, and people just hate her for it. Which is like this: if that was uh, like you were trying to influence young people and, and create people who uh, they could look up to, isn't this exactly what you'd be trying to do? Yeah, but uh, you know, somehow we find. A way to to uh, villainize her yeah you know what uh what it always makes me think of i read a book oh man 15 or more years ago called the blue parakeet by uh mm. scott knight and he told this story at the beginning that's always stuck with me when i hear squawking when when a large group of people are really upset about one thing like alexandria ocasio-cortez aoc um he tells this story about, uh, you know, in living in, I think it was suburban Chicago. And uh, he had all these uh, birds. He, he loves birds and he had bird feeders in his backyard. And, you know, just a pretty consistent uh, group of birds and types of birds that he would see back there. And one day there was just a, a huge bird sort of outcry, squawking, and they were really upset. And he went out and um, turns out that uh, one of the neighbor's blue parakeets had gotten free and was in huh. the backyard and it was causing distress. Just the presence of this blue parakeet was causing distress uh -huh. to all of the other birds. And uh, he used that. He was talking about the emergent church at the time and uh, how uh -huh. much distress it was causing everyone. But I have found that the blue parakeet analogy is just a fantastic um, for me, like a, a framing story for when you see people who are just obsessed and fixated on one person like AOC, she is a blue parakeet. Yeah, so it, it distresses this uh, homeostasis, this everything staying the same, which people so feel so secure about. But we don't realize to be human is not to be uh, homeostatic or to, to uh, only... Uh, be homogenous uh, with our own kind, but to be human, part of and parcel of being human is to actually venture out 
and ask deeper questions and look for deeper experiences other than you have. That's, that's who we are as human beings. And, um, and, and these deep questions are yeah. the things that really inform us of, uh, uh, out of our silos that we look at the world through. Yeah. Hey, one more thing before we get into our, our main topic today, I saw in the news, I don't know if you saw that uh, somebody discovered a 12,000 year old canvas down in the Amazon. Did you see this? No, I hadn't seen it. Oh, you're going to want to look at this story. Yeah. So on this canvas, you know, it's pictures of like, you know, mastodons and other extinct species from the ice age, but it's from 12,000 mm -hmm. years ago. And uh, when the Amazon was just an entirely different place, but it made me think of you immediately because I will always remember my first day in seminary. My evening class was with you in um, uh, American. And you walked in and you said, man, this guy is as big as a mastodon. Is that it? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but I will always remember you. He has buck teeth like a mastodon. <laughs> <laughs> you talked about... Um, Native American history on this land going back 21,000 years. And I remember, you know, cause I was coming from more of a conservative or evangelical background. I had never heard anybody give that number. So 21,000 was uh, piqued my interest because I've always heard like, you know, 3 billion or, you know, some number you can't even get your head around or 6,000 was always the thing, 6,000. So when you said 21, I remember my head snapping up and looking around the room like, did anyone else hear that? And <laughs> right away, hands started going up and I knew what they were going to ask. And somebody said, well, wait a minute, how 21,000, but the earth is only 6,000 years old. And I remember you, do you remember what you answered? Do you remember what you said? No, no idea. You said we, your story might only go back 6,000 years, but my people's go back 21,000. Okay. <laughs> so uh, it's interesting. So Edith and I were talking about myth yesterday in the Genesis, uh, Genesis 1 through 11 in particular, and how people take those as so literal, right? It's like, this is fact. And, and so Adam and Eve are fact, but they won't look at our myths and do the same. And the reason why is because, None of these myths were ever meant to be looked at through uh, a factual lens. And so it's ridiculous to try and do that with both um, uh, Native American and uh, biblical myths. And so uh, that's a problem. So if you're from a, a post-enlightenment worldview, you're, you're trying to prove something from a scientific perspective instead of understanding the way in which the writers wrote it and wanted it to, or, or actually told it orally and wanted it to be understood. And so, um, and, and usually it's not just one meaning, but many truths in those stories. So, Yeah. Epic stories are layered and layered. They have a surplus of meaning as my, uh, as other guy I love, Paul Ricoeur would say, they, they are overflowing with in interpretations and applications and possibilities and meanings. Hey, I've right. never, this gets us back. Oh, and by the way, I, I thought I used 28,000 years. Maybe I was using 21 back then. Uh, oh. Every time I come across new discoveries, it's, it's longer. Of course, there are lots of Native folks who would say, we've been here forever. Maybe we have. Um, but, you know, I think even if you just said 28,000 years, which is the, 
the so far the farthest recorded back presence of humans um, on this uh, continent. Yeah. Um, that that somehow compares, uh, or doesn't even compare, I should say, to the you know uh, five hundred years that some people have, two hundred that others, sixty that others. You know, it's sort of like the the new immigrants compared to twenty eight thousand years. You know, and a lot of tribes, can, can, most tribes can trace their time on the land that they're on now to about thirteen or fourteen thousand years at least. Oh, and we yeah. just keep finding out more and more later. But but even if you just said fourteen thousand years, I mean that that is so much longer. And 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 what that means is not well we we have a right to it more than you. What it means is like we understand the land better than you because it's been passed down through all these generations this relationship so yeah you know i've never heard you talk about origin stories in that specific way before but it has me thinking about you know if you were to try and read the story of a corn woman or grandmother turtle or it's turtle island story if you were to try and read it in a really sort of a concrete way it wouldn't work the same Right, it wouldn't bear the right. same fruit. Well, it, to to me, what's important is not to 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 look at them in one way or the other. The important part is to not even ask the question: Is this fact or not? Once you once you ask that question: Is this, this fact or not? Then you've fallen into this uh, Western trap. Okay, yeah. this uh, trap that you handed down from the Enlightenment, and what it does is it, it, it then then if you're a conservative, you have to prove that it actually happened, right? Yeah. But if you're a progressive, you might have to prove that it didn't actually have to happen. Mm. And so both are guilty of the same thing, which is going to approaching the scripture, approaching the story, if you will, mm -hmm. um, from a way that was never meant to be approached. Yeah. And then you put yourself above the narrative and you stand in judgment of it. Yeah. Yeah. Then rather than understand yourself as part of the story, which is the point. Yes. Finding yes. yourself in the story. That's the point of orality. That's the point of story is to find ourselves in the story and then think, how would we react? Mm. Which probably brings us to the thing that we most wanted to talk about today, which was deep questioning. And yeah, well, that's part of it, yeah. There's a posture behind deep questioning that says something's off. Something's not right. This isn't the best it could be. How did we come to be here? Why are things the way they are? And asking, we call it the question behind the question, right? That's a right. phrase we've embraced. And that's what our book's all about. Yeah. Part of it, what our book's all about is decolonizing evangelicalism, which basically is another way of saying, uh, putting a set of deep questions to evangelicalism. Yeah. Well, and Christianity in general, by the way, but <laughs> yeah, just, yeah, just religion and organized religion. Yeah. So we were sent an article um, and I saw that you had quite a, a Facebook correspondence about it, but it turns out that recently the Southern Baptist seminaries, there are six of them, Gateway in Ontario, California, Midwestern in Kansas City, Missouri, New Orleans in Nolens. Southern 
or Southeastern in Wake Forest, North Carolina, Southern Baptist in Louisville, Kentucky, or Louisville, or you say, you say Louisville. Louisville. <laughs> Louisville, and Southwestern in Fort Worth, Texas. They um, have banned talking about critical race theory. Of course. And critical race theory is something that we talk about in our book. So I joked earlier that seminary students at that school will not be allowed to quote our book in their papers. Yeah, so that, that'll be the end result, us and lots of other folks, of course, which is basically suppression. But let's get to what's actually behind it. Okay. So what's actually behind this is protecting white supremacy. Hmm. Tell this me is how, no accident. Okay. You're going to have to tell me yeah. how you get there because in their official statement, it says, and I quote, we stand together on historic Southern Baptist condemnations of racism in any form. And we also declare the affirmation of critical race theory, intersectionality, and any version of critical theory is incompatible with the Baptist faith and message. Yeah. Well, I'm an ordained Baptist minister. <laughs> Uh, so I, I, can, I have a right to disagree, I think. But um, uh, but I'm not with the Southern Baptist. But so here's the thing: you're missing the clause. It's so small. You remember? Uh, did you see the movies, The Santa Claus? Yeah, that was a fun. Movie. Santa Claus Two, The Santa Claus Two. Yeah, yeah. You have to look really, really hard under microscopes to <laughs> to see the little clause and the clause at the end of their statement on racism and all that. Except except for things that we don't want to talk about. Mm. And so here's the problem. Um, they have found that uh, critical theory gives uh, black indigenous people of color, uh, women, etc., cetera, uh, a, a tool to look at the injustice done uh, by denominations like the Southern Baptists and the continued injustice that's being done in a, in a lot of ways, and from a systemic level, okay? Mm. So, um, so, and in the system uh, that they are trying to protect is built in a, a, a white supremacy, and a white supremacy says that people of color and women, black indigenous people of color and women, are, are not as, their voice is not as important as ours. And so if we keep this means of analysis out of it, um, we don't have to deal with it on a structural level. Okay. And so the main thing is to keep structural, a structural critique or structural deep questioning of white supremacy out of their denomination. Now, if they looked at it from, and here's part of the other thing is self-preservation, right? We talked about uh, homeostasis earlier, trying to stay, keep everything the same. If they looked at their denomination and their history from a critical uh, uh, race theory perspective, they would have to, if they had integrity, they would need to probably dismantle and rebuild everything. There's no problem about it. They absolutely would have to because it's, their system is built on racism, their system is built on hierarchy. Their system is built on white supremacy. It's built on um, heteropatriarchy. And so, uh, so they are saying the tool that can dismantle us, we have to keep away from our seminarians. And so that's why they're doing it. Self-preservation. Oh, boy. So 
in the statement, and we're reading an article, one of the articles that we were sent was by the Religious News Service. We'll link to it in the show notes. But one of the things it says in here, and it's quoting, um, his name is Aiken, A-K-I-N. I want to see, so his name is Daniel Aiken. He's the president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in Wake Forest. He says a couple interesting things. On one hand, he says, we want to be crystal clear that we oppose all forms of racism, personal and systemic. So that's interesting that he even used the S word, systemic. But then on the other Mm -hmm. hand, he also says that because, so critical theory originally had um, Marxist roots. And he says that because Marxist theories are atheistic, Southern Baptists must reject its underlying framework and its understanding of the world. So it's interesting. What are capitalist systems? (laughs) What about capitalist systems are atheistic as well. They're built on greed and uh, a few people making a whole lot and a lot of other people having to sacrifice as a result. That has nothing to do with Christianity or at least the, the religion that Jesus taught or the movement that Jesus taught. Yeah. Hey, Randy, so this is already a a completely biased article as if capitalism is somehow sanctified. But uh, Marxism, uh, which is another economic uh, system, is somehow demonized. And so it already begins with uh, prejudice. So let's let's look at this. um, And educators ought to be ashamed of this, by the way, to 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 make these kinds of statements. They ought to know better. They ought to be well enough educated to to not fall in this trap. But think of this. If a Marxist uses a Jesus story, does that mean from now on we stay away from Jesus stories? (laughs) Can a a Christian use a Marxist story or analysis to actually say something? So this all comes from what we would call purity culture, right? Like they're trying to keep something pure, Right. As if all truth isn't God's truth. Right. This is why I said they should know better as uh, religious educators. So so what it does is it creates this bubble between the church and the quote unquote world as if God isn't at work in the world, but is only at work within the church. And this has been the problem of the church for over 2000 years to create the bubble that says we own God. Now the Southern Baptists are making that declaration. We own God because we can say what you can uh, examine and what you can't examine. And you cannot examine white supremacy from a black indigenous person of color or female womanist perspective. And so they are replacing themselves with God. Wow. Ah, that is interesting. I did not know that that's where you were going to go with that. I I just said that backwards. (laughs) They are replacing God (laughs) with themselves. Yeah. Putting themselves in the place where, 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 where this wonderful creator of the universe would be. And, and they are afraid. This comes out of fear. They are afraid to ask those deep questions that might indict their own history and their own practices. And you can say, I'm against racism and systemic racism as much as you want. We got a a president right now who says he won the election. People lie all the time. And they lie because in their own minds, they have rationalized it. 
But you cannot rationalize this. Couple things come to my mind. One is this guilty by association thing haunts conservative Christianity. That yeah, it's you, the purity culture thing, right? Yeah. That if you are, um, if you stray in even one area from the, you know, established expectation of whatever the topic is, if you stray in even one area, then you are discounted in all areas. And so, for instance, exactly. like with, with Marx, you know, there are so many elements to Marxist theory and for them to discount it because he was atheist or that the thing is, you know, the, the Marxist theorists are atheists is to miss the fact that his analysis of the underside of capitalism might actually have some teeth. And, right. oh, the, and, and that's the, that's the real religion they're trying to protect. Right. So one of the things that I have started doing, Randy, uh, when I was doing my my education is whenever I get a new book, I always turn. This is the uh, something that I never knew to do before, but I've started doing is I immediately turn to the back and look at the index of topics or whatever. And I look for a couple things. I always go to R first to see if they're going to even address race. That's the very first thing I do. I might go to W to see if they do whiteness at all, if they even address whiteness. But my main thing I do is I go to the letter C and I look for four words that start with a C to see if they're going to address it. The first is capitalism. The next is colonialism before that. Then before that is Christendom. And then before that is Constantinian when, when Christianity changed in the fourth century. So I just want to know, are they even going to name the four C's of concern uh, is <laughs> what I call them? Because if you don't name, let's just stick with capitalism in this sense. If you don't name capitalism or colonialism, then you're just assuming that the way things are is a given and that how you address it is the variable. But if you assume capitalism in this case, right, versus, let's say, socialism or communism. If you assume capitalism, but you never name it, it's always the elephant in the room. And so I just, I am always amazed, even I, I've read books about finances, right, or being a generous giver, or how to fund a nonprofit, and they will never say the word capitalism. It's amazing how just assumed it is and how ever-present it is. Right. And these, these assumptions are what we're saying have to be questioned. Yeah. So this is where the deep questioning comes in. And so, you know, this, this is not new. Uh, if you're like somebody who follows Jesus and, uh, you know, you're interested in Jesus, did this constantly, constantly. Mm -hmm. I think of just like Luke 4, right? where he's, he's uh, giving his uh, sort of like mission, if yeah. you will, out of Isaiah 61, but he's in Luke 4. And, and then uh, they basically start to question him. And then so he says, hey, you know, hey, uh, guess what? And he, he begins to uh, pose a, a set of um, a scenarios where God spoke to uh, the God of, quote, unquote, the God of Israel spoke to all these people who weren't part of them. And 
who healed them and who fed them. And, and, and they got so mad at him, they tried to throw him off a cliff. Well, Southern Baptist, this is what you're doing. You're trying to throw Jesus off a cliff. Uh, you're trying to throw people of color, black indigenous people of color, and questioning women off a cliff right now because you don't like the way that you look as a result because God is not the same as you picture God to be. Mm. He's not the same through Native American eyes. God is not the same through indigenous eyes and, and, and African American eyes and, and uh, womanist eyes. And God looks different through different people's perspective. And you don't like that. So let's just throw them all off a cliff. One thing that you and I, we, we do talk about in the book, but we talk about on this podcast quite a bit, is you have to pay attention to modifiers. Anytime something's been modified, if it has uh, right something attached to it. So, for instance, if you have indigenous theology, right, that, that's been modified, that's the modifiers, indigenous you got to pay attention to that stuff because um, the question behind the question is what's normal, what's not getting modified and is assumed to be normal. But the irony in this situation is that Southern Baptist has a modifier. And if you ask even one question, which is what's the deal with Southern? Why aren't you just Baptist? What's the Southern? Mm -hmm. One question exposes a racist legacy. Absolutely. Yeah, and I know that well, since I'm, I had to take a number of Baptist history courses, right? During right. my early years. Yeah, and so basically it was, it was over the question of whether missionaries could hold slaves, people who were enslaved. And uh, the state of Alabama put forth the, the quote-unquote perfect candidate um, the uh, Northern Mission Board of the Baptist at that time, um, the American Baptist, rejected that person. And then they began to withdraw from the larger body because they wanted enslaved people uh, to be normalized. And, and even that their missionaries uh, and, and among others could hold uh, people as slaves. Mm. And so, yeah, the and, and quote unquote, they've apologized for slavery. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you know, uh, words mm -hmm. compared to actions uh, are so weak. Mm. So one other thing I want to say is that I'd like to speak in favor of this deep questioning with but without critical race theory. So let me tell you what I'm thinking here. Critical race theory is something that I picked up in my education uh, when I was doing a doctorate. And it was interesting because when I first learned about it, it was such a niche sort of academic topic that most people didn't even know what I was talking about. I could literally be at a conference, whether that was a professional conference or even uh, an educational conference. And I would tell people what I was studying and I could see their eyes sort of glaze over. Like I had to make my elevator speech like literally 20 seconds to tell people what I, what my big project was going to be or else they just lost interest. And then about a year ago, this thing, critical race theory hits the mainstream and all of a sudden it's Daily, I see posts about it on Facebook. It's in the news. It's really wild that it has come so central 
in the conversation with Black Lives Matter, the George Floyd protests, so many other things going on that that this has become a sort of a, a thing that that people even know about. But I have said from the very beginning, critical race theory is not for everyone. I've said that from the very beginning. It's a very specific set of tools in a toolbox that helps you, you know, do diagnostics on what's broken in the system. And um, it's pessimistic, you know, and I, I understand why some people don't like it. It's fine. And I said from day one, it's not for everybody. So I say that in order to speak in favor of deep questioning. Because you and I have talked, you actually don't need the specific toolbox that comes with CRT to do the exact same work. You just need a curiosity and a permission to ask the deeper question. So you actually don't need the specific toolkit that comes with this approach but you do need a posture, right? And a permission to ask the bigger questions. So I would say, yeah, it seems to me that deep questioning, you know, if you don't want to get into the history of critical theory and the Frankfurt School and all that stuff, it's fine. That's totally fine. But what we cannot do is avoid the bigger questions. Right. And so now there's, I don't know if you noticed in the article, but there's uh, just mentions for a second, but, and I only keyed into this, uh, it mentioned intersectionality. Yeah. And I only, I only keyed into this because I have a, a conservative friend who, who lumped critical race theory and intersectionality together. And so I know that that's more of the sort of the, the latest, uh, uh, you know, white supremacist bugaboo. Intersectionality. What is intersectionality? Intersectionality is where we un- we begin to understand how these have affected uh, uh, these systems of injustice, for example, have began to affect um, the different kinds of people in this in similar ways. Mm. And so, um, so uh, uh, this means that uh, a feminist and a uh, indigenous person. And uh, a, a, a African American theologian and others might have similar sorts of complaints or similar sorts of critiques. I think is a better word um, on the system. And so, oh man, we have to disarm that right away, right? If you're a Southern Baptist, and and this is nothing new either. This is this is exactly what happened when. Irish folks started coming across uh, after the potato famine, and they were living in cities like um, New York and Philadelphia and Boston and you know uh, Baltimore, and, um, and and they came over and they were not considered white at the time. Irish people weren't; they were considered to be uh, sort of the lowest class, and um, and so they were put in the 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 lowest living housing uh, housing situations. Uh, they were given the worst jobs if they even had jobs. And so they were Irish ghettos. Well, along with black folks, right? And so what happened is that when this intersectionality of Irish and African-Americans started to come together, the white elite said, oh, we can't have this. We got to choose one or the other. And of course, we're going to choose the people who are white, right? Who are whiter skinned. And we're going to give them a leg up. So that they they don't form this alliance with black people because they were intermarrying, et cetera. 
And so, uh, and there were lots of derogatory names for both that reflected on, on both uh, ethnicities and, and both nationalities. And so, um, uh, so what happens is they said, we're going to give them middle management uh, positions. We're going to allow them to be policemen and firemen and, uh, and uh, um, ombudsmen and, and people in city government, not the highest forms of city government, like it was a mistake for, you know, when a person becomes a mayor and they're Irish, but uh, um, at least from the elite perspective. So, um, so this intersectionality is really important. And what it says is that we, it's that old idea of divide and conquer. So not only do you have to stay away from um, critical race theory, you also have to stay away from intersectionality because that's more forces that come against us if you're a Southern Baptist. Yeah. You know what's funny? I, that's, I, all right. I'm listening to what you're saying, and I'm thinking to myself, so let's say that we have a listener, and I know we have listeners in this category, who go to more conservative or, or evangelical schools. And let's say that they're not allowed to use certain words. So I've been mentally keeping track. So if you don't use critical, right, because that comes from the Marxist uh, theory, if you don't use intersectionality, right, because that comes from sort of an identity politics, the overlapping of race, gender, class. If you don't use oppression, you can't use the O word for oppression, and the S word of systemic, could you still ask the deeper questions? Yes, right? Even if you stayed away from the buzzwords, you could still ask the deeper questions. So I'm trying to think of a way forward for people who are gonna be affected by this mentality, or maybe they, they're in an environment where there's just um, you know, restrictions on them. But the posture itself and asking the bigger questions, you can still do it. Yeah. And, and the problem is going to be when they start banning books such as ours. <laughs>